I was the only one in the office and uh, the phone rang, so I skulked over and picked up the phone and on the other end of the phone, this woman was very confident in her English accent, really uh, not happy, but uh, slightly upbeat that she was just talking to someone. I was going to be face to face with the murderer. It was basically the first time she was putting down in print what actually happened that time. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Trainee journalists often have to find their feet in a dog-eat-dog world where you're only as good as your last byline. And many of those who've been landed onto the crime beat have literally had to learn on their feet in the most bizarre of circumstances. Sunday World travel and motoring editor Dara Keeney is nowadays more at home in a top-of-the-range Mercedes are flying first class to an exotic destination. But it wasn't always like that. Today, Dara and I go back in time to where it all began. And he tells me about his experiences as a young, wet-behind-the-years cub reporter and about the day he came face-to-face with a killer. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So I've just come, Dara, from a sort of a, an hour session I did with some newbies who are coming in to the independent group, uh, Media House, to do an internship. And they're going to be moved around the various departments. Some of them are interested in crime. I think some of them might be heading the way of the Sunday world for a baptism of fire, which is all it can be described as. We've both had it. Um, and I just thought, what a time to talk about this story regarding Claire McDermott and your experiences as a cub reporter. Now, first of all, for those who don't know you, what is it you do now and why aren't you on the crime beat? <laughs> well, I'm probably best known for the, the fluffy features. I've um, I've had lots of titles through the years, like TV editor um, and chief writer for the magazine when it launched in 2003. But um, at the moment, I'm travel editor, features editor, motoring editor. Um, so I do all the fun stuff in the middle. Yeah. I leave the crime to you. I leave the sport to the the anoraks and sport and everything yeah. else in the middle. And uh, I have a I have a foot in and I help out with the magazine still. So, But nonetheless, you have, uh, it wasn't always like that. There was a time when you were put to work on any story that came into the Sunday world. That's right. Well, I think I think you described it yourself, Nicola, recently enough. Um, it's uh, journalism is a trade as opposed to a kind of a career. As as much as you can learn in college and the pieces of paper that you get, you don't really learn the the job until you're in an office at a desk and um, getting tip offs and stories or chasing stories or just getting a sniff of something that something's not right and chasing after it and building contact. So you kind of, I think everyone has to kind of go through this almost hazing period of of doing um, anything and everything to get your byline. I still remember seeing my name in print for the first time, um, and it was a, it was a really boring feature. Uh, but I saw by Derek Heaney in print that Sunday morning and just getting such a buzz out of it. Yeah. And um, I wasn't being paid at the time. I was just happy to have a desk. I remember being sent off by the news editor to do it, and he gave me the entire week to do it because I was so new. Um, God, I'd love that luxury these days. Yeah. Um, and... 
so that kind of progressed into uh, taking on stories being handed down from the news desk or people getting uh, or heading off to interview politicians or whatever press conferences were happening at the time. And um, about a year in, um, they still had me on this kind of rolling kind of uh, contract where they were still testing me, testing the waters. And I think they knew the magazine was coming out a few months later. So, I, but I was still doing the news beat and. Um, just one one random Tuesday, uh, I was sitting in the office uh, at the desk and the news desk, and the phone rang. And you pick it up. You don't leave it. You don't leave it ringing. And um, out of nowhere, this woman just uh, called the news desk. wasn't looking for me. It was just I was just by pure luck. I was the one sitting there. Uh, actually, no one invited tell, me to tell lunch. Them, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, tell them why you were sitting there because you were because totally it was so no new. Yeah. It's all part of the hazing. Yeah. Like, and you see it nowadays. It um, I've been there. I've been sitting there with your kind you of just even don't too nervous get to take your sandwiches out because you don't know people well enough to eat in front of them and everything. Or you don't want to take your sandwich out in case you get the invite. Yeah, exactly. Imagine they saw you bringing your lunch in, but they were actually willing to invite you to lunch that day. God, that is like that is a, a crime. It is. So you have to get through that phase. So because no one had invited me to lunch, I was the only one in the office, and uh, the phone rang. So I skulked over to uh, John Donlan's desk at the time and picked up the phone and. On the other end of the phone, this woman was very confident in her English accent, really uh, not happy, but uh, slightly upbeat that she was just talking to someone. And she announced herself as Claire McDermott. She also said, I probably know who she is. I absolutely did not have a clue who she was. Um, and she said, I, I'm in Mount Troy, in the Docus. And she'd like to tell me her story. And I was like, okay, because I'm on a payphone, so I don't have long. And um, so can you just come in and talk to me? I don't want to do it over the phone. I want to do it face to face. Um, and I said, well, how do I get in? Like, so, so new. And she goes, tell them you're Jimmy Tippett and you'll get past the door. And she hung up. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, okay, who the hell is Jimmy Tippett? Who the hell is Claire McDermott? Um, what's going on? And you couldn't, uh, of course, Google like no, that but, I mean, there was internet, there was, but not, as, not, not as, as readily available. Widespread. Now, yeah. So I didn't have the luxury of being able to just search her name. Um, I even didn't know how her name was spelt. Um, and judging by some of the reports that were written, I still don't know how her name is spelt. But... Um, you don't know how my name is spelled, Nicola, and I've been here 20 years, so there's nothing I just new can't there. Spell. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Darren Kearney, nice to meet you. Um, so I actually, when the when the news editor came back, I said to him, I just told him what happened. And I said, She says, come in tomorrow, so on Wednesday, between the hours of eleven and twelve, I think the visiting hours were. Again, I didn't know any of this. Um, and I kept calling it Mount Joy, and I had to be corrected that it's the Doka Center. Like I knew nothing of this mm. world. And um so I I decided to take it on and, and my, my news editor and the managing editor at the time, another John, said, look, go for it, go after it um, because there's some big names in there. We don't really, <clears throat> as they said themselves, look, there might be a story here, but we don't know who she is. But there are some big names in Mountjoy, um, uh, including Catherine Nevin. So let's try and get a story about them as well and right. take the chance and... Uh, just so suck, suck it up, go basically. along, yeah. be Jimmy Tippett. I had to be Jimmy Tippett. Who's yes. Jimmy Tippett? Um, <clears throat> uh, well, I have no idea. I had no idea at the time. It was the most crazy name as well. I remember telling my mates and going, yeah, I have to be Jimmy Tippett today and I have to go into prison. But I don't have a Jimmy Tippett ID. No. I don't have anything that says I'm Jimmy Tippett. So someone at the time, I think it was Neve O'Connor, um, uh, said to me, don't bring ID in in case they ask you for okay. ID. Okay. 
uh, she had done Catherine Evans' book, I think, at the time, or she had at least, she knew the way She'd around. She'd been in and out of a prison yeah. before. So she said to me, um, don't bring ID because you're saying you're someone else. And if they ask you for ID and you pull out your wallet faffing around, they might actually say, here, show us what's in your wallet. Yeah. So just play dumb. You don't have ID with you. Um, <clears throat> but my naivety was like, and, and I didn't want to bring my tape recorder in uh, because it was a big clunky one with old school cassette tapes. Um, and that was just too obvious. So I decided I needed to take notes though. So I bought a giant pad. I couldn't even find any journalist pads. The small little, the, the ones that fit in your pocket. It's an A4. Yeah. So I brought in a giant A4 brand new pad and a pen. And um, I was like suited and booted because I still was trying to impress everyone in the Sunday world. Full suit and tie. And I... Um, off I went, left my wallet behind, and, oh, before I left, <clears throat> before I left, the managing editor did say to me, will you just get her a disposable camera? Right. And try and slip it to her, and try and get pictures of Catherine Nevin, because no one has ever got a picture of her behind bars. We only ever got her on court appearances or at the trial. And I was like, so I have to smuggle in a disposable camera, I'm already nervous enough as it is, and I have to pretend to be Jimmy Tibbet. <laughs> Um, and where were you going to put the disposable camera? Was there any conversation about that? or? Oh, no. I mean, no, n- not even Eve was ready for this one. <laughs> like, so I had it in my pocket and I had it ready to hand over when I was caught eventually frisked. I just assumed that there'd be security and I would be caught and not let in and I'd be heading back to the office 10 minutes later, uh, embarrassed that I let them down. But what actually happened was I got into... <laughs> Into the building, uh, got my, made my way to the right place anyway, the right and the holding area. I don't know if you know it. Um, and there were lots of there was a couple of dads with kids. Weirdly enough, you, the the TV and movie scene is usually the other way around. Yeah. Um, and there was a few other women with kids. Uh, lots of kids. It was almost like kids were being brought to see their mums who were behind bars. It was quite sad. But I met up to the officer and I said, "I'm here to see Claire McDermott." And he just said, "Who are you?" And I said, "Oh, Jimmy Tippett." And what's the pad for? And like, honestly, this is a giant pad in my hand. And I said, oh, just, I'm a friend, just want to take some notes down because for the legal defence, I just want to, um, I want to give her a, a, a shot because I know she's over from England and I haven't seen her in years. And um, and it was so stupid that I think he just said, oh, okay, okay, in you go. And I walked into the waiting room and we were the only two in there at the time. And sorry, there was no one there. I still haven't met her. I. Yeah. I did find one tiny little headshot of her. So I had a rough idea that she was blonde and she was in her 20s. And um, we um, had our choice of tables and it's not like in the movies. So there wasn't, a, you didn't have to find her amid a sea of faces. Not at all. I right. was li- Thank God I, I, for that. Yeah, that would have been awkward pretending to be her best friend uh, who she hadn't seen. Um, so she just, um, she signalled to a big table of four over in the corner by a window and you can see out into this communal area and everything but there's no one walking around. And... Um, we sat there for an hour um, going through her story. She was just she was just desperate to tell her story, which I'll obviously go into soon enough. Um, and she didn't like the the angles that the UK press had been taking about her. Um, she confessed to her the murder. Yeah, I was going to say, at what point in this conversation when you sit down and you're trying to get comfortable in one another's presence, does she tell you that she's a murderer? She told me straight away, actually, on the phone that, oh, no, maybe she inferred that you might know who I am. And yeah. when I looked her up, I found out that okay. she was a murderer. Um, like, I knew I was I was going to be face-to-face with the murderer. That was the goal, anyway. And what she looked like? Um, she was mid-20s. I found out then she was 28 when I was chatting to her. So she was mid-20s, very skinny, uh, relatively attractive, kind of, I think it was kind of dyed blonde. I kind of got that impression. Long hair, um, 
quite skinny. She was wearing a kind of a vest top. I remember a white vest top. And it, so you could see kind of how skinny her arms and shoulders were. Um, and she was wearing baggy, baggy tracksuit. It didn't look like what I was expecting. I didn't know whether I was expecting kind of onesies, orange onesies. I didn't know what to expect. I just... I wasn't expecting to be greeted by someone who looked relatively normal. And, and not like a murderer. Jesus, no. Absolutely no. Or far from it. Um, but I think she just wanted to talk. I kind of got that impression straight away. She just wanted to tell her story. And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I had to admit that I didn't know who she was and I didn't know if that was going to offend her. But I looked her up. <clears throat> and so I knew that about eight years earlier, she had stabbed a neighbour and the neighbour had passed away. Um, and that brought her into the scenario where she now found herself incarcerated. Um, and so I wanted to ask her how she ended up in Ireland because that's how she, she, she left prison in the UK. To go back to the murder, because that's a very violent crime for a woman to commit a stabbing. I was so naive and ignorant to that world, Nicola, that I didn't think of how um, almost depraved the, the act the murder was at the time. I was just... I was just writing it off as, oh yeah, she murdered her her neighbour, who was allegedly a friend as well. But at the time, had there been a row or something? Yeah, so there was a row. Um, she was she was talking about like actually she opened up and uh, there was no reports. There was she had never done an interview about the nineteen ninety four murder before, so there was nothing to to touch on. But there were pages and pages of my A four pad rammed full of notes. Um, by the end of the hour, but she she was kind of talking about. Um, I remember I have I have some of the interview here in front of me where like she kind of said I was only 19 when it happened and my brother got into a bit of trouble from time to time but it was only a little bit of petty crime she was trying to claim mm. and one day his ex-girlfriend uh, started spreading rumours that he had burgled a house and I knew he hadn't but the problem was that people were out and about looking for him talking because the rumours had spread so car, she, she was talking about the scene she was trying to set the scene about how cars were driving up and down looking for him and she was getting really worried for him so then she said, so he asked me to have a chat with her, Tracy, and um, I agreed and I went up to the house where she was babysitting. Uh, um, Tracy was babysitting another lady called Lisa, uh, babysitting Lisa's child. So Lisa Morris. Lisa Morris, yeah. So Lisa unfortunately didn't last the night, but um, she said, I wasn't alone and I brought a knife with me just in case those lads in the car saw us, but I never intended on using it. I was only heading up to the house to give Tracy a good hiding. I will admit that. When I got there, we argued for a minute or two before Lisa appeared at the door. I had absolutely no idea she was in the house. Then she started at me and we had a go at each other. It got a bit heated and in the spur of the moment, I pulled the knife on her and stabbed her once in the chest. It was a moment of lunacy. I was in complete shock. I had just stabbed my friend. I went home to get my head straight and then I headed straight back up to the house to see if she was all right. Unfortunately, she wasn't and I found out later she had died. I pleaded not guilty to murder and guilty to manslaughter. I never intended to kill anyone, especially Lisa. I was only there to give Tracy a hiding. That was her. She was trying defense. to claim that, you know, this was a spur of the moment thing, that she hadn't premeditated it. The courts obviously didn't believe her because she was sentenced to life with a yes. minimum of nine years. She had brought the knife with her. She'd gone up there for her out, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, hugely violent women knife attacks, I don't think are that frequent you know certainly not here maybe in mm. the uk they'd be more more regular i don't know but it was it was a case that got a lot of headlines at the time and when when she was sent down she was seven months pregnant um which uh 
resulted in her being put in a prison called Newell Prison, which I think specialises in um, pregnant inmates. And so she was able to have her son there, but then had to be handed over straight away to members of the McDermott family um, before she was transferred to Durham, which is one of, as you know, Britain's most feared prisons. And um, she actually found herself mixing with some huge heavyweight names. Um, She said it to me at the time, imagine a young and maternal 19-year-old who had just given birth to her first child and I am thrown into Durham prison where some of the world's most hardened criminals are carrying out their life sentences. I was in the same wing as Myra Hindley and Rose West. It gave me such a shock. The most unpleasant thing about Durham, though, was that I was in with all the paedophiles. Everyone has their own story, even Myra and Rose, but people who who harm children are scum. They make my blood boil. So she was kind of trying to almost play down her role in society behind bars. She kind of, you know yourself, there's a hierarchy. She was looking down her nose on... on Yeah, and I'd say a lot of people do, to be honest. It's a a kind of a go-to hot take, I think, for prisoners. And I don't know if they find themselves using that as an excuse to justify their act or to to nullify the the severity of the act. She, She was almost saying, well, look, I'm bad, I killed someone, but I'm not as bad as the pedos. And when you had gone looking for stuff on her, her, was her case covered at the time in the media and was there further coverage of her being in prison with Hindley and West? Uh, no, there wasn't actually at the time. And if there was, it wasn't on the internet. There, I'm sure there's files in libraries somewhere. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my search at the time didn't get very far. So my my initial chat with her in the room, in the waiting room, um, which, as I said to you, ran on to the full hour. Um, I can't remember if I was asked to leave after the hour or if that was the a lot of time. But um, it, was, it was basically the first time she was putting down in print what actually happened that time. And... Um, I've since done a bit of digging um, to find out where the name Jimmy Tippett came from, which I'll get to at some stage. Um, But the fact that she then uh, fled prison, that did make the headlines. So Okay, so So she had stayed in prison in the UK for eight or nine years. She was literally getting to the end of her sentence. And she had then moved on to Ascom, I think it was called, which is a kind of a minimum security prison. And that was kind of, she had won an appeal to get moved there with three years left in her sentence. And... Like some prisons here, I think it's all about rehabilitation. It's kind of getting you ready for society. Like she had, she had, she was allowed escorted visits at first, and then she was unescorted visits, and where she was allowed to meet her son, um, outside of behind in front of the prison. Like she didn't yeah. have to worry about being behind bars to meet him. Uh, remember, he had been born in a prison um, eight years earlier, or yeah, eight years earlier. So she and she got to meet her family as well. I think Ascom was quite close to her family. Um, I think geography was important to her on this one. I remember her kind of being quite adamant that she got moved to Ascom, not just for the the minimum security element. It was for family visits and stuff. So like she that. was a trusted, probably um, a prisoner who behaved, a model prisoner. She would have been trusted enough to go out on her own and to come back because that's what happened. Yeah, she described herself as a model prisoner. Um, she uh, another quote from the interview that she did with me was. Um, she had she had actually gone to apply for some jobs and had uh, worked in a gym. I think she was a former um, secretary or a receptionist at a, at a massage parlor. So she she hadn't she didn't have a huge uh, great CV going into jail, but she was working on that in jail. Um, and so she got a managerial role at a gym. She worked at an Oxfam shop as well. And um, she did that for her quote was I did that for three months, and then they allowed me on unescorted trips to the town once I obeyed all the curfews. That meant I could see my little boy and my family. I also worked in a gym, which I mentioned um, for a while. This was part-time work while I was sitting a degree in sports psychology. 
I know I have said this before, but I really was the model prisoner during my sentence. I organised basketball camps. I sat two degrees. I even arranged for a five-hour stepathon for special needs charity where we managed to raise a thousand pounds sterling. My, she continued, my CV looks fantastic. I was a straight A student in my sports degree and the dean of the university even wrote to my governor to tell her how well I was doing. It was what, But it was while I was working in the gym that I breached my license. I went for a few drinks with my new university friends and I was caught out. The governor threatened me with extending my sentence and I got a fright. I didn't want to have all my hard work turned around for a simple little breach of my license. I panicked and just walked out the back gate. I spent two weeks in England living it up on money I had been saving. Then I started to appear in the papers over there and I got scared. I basically just lost the bottle and jumped in a boat and came over here to Dublin. So it all went wrong in 2003 when she went for a few drinks with people she was working in the gym with and just didn't go back. She and just stayed out the too The wheels late. came off. She panicked. She said, like, I remember asking her, did, did, was she told it was definitely extending? And she said, I wasn't sure, but the tone of the governor led her to believe that the, it was going to be extended. And she, and like, not that I'm, I'm not pals with her, obviously, but I <laughs> sympathised with her. I got, okay, this is the first murder I'd been speaking to as well. But like, I found myself kind of almost feeling sorry for her. Yeah. She was so close to the end. Um, she obviously has made bad decisions. She, is, she has a history at that. Uh, but she decided that getting out, even those months to the end, getting out would be a better option than appealing the potential for, of the extension to the sentence. So she literally walked out the gate and... Uh, and came to Ireland? Well, first couple of weeks at home, and then when the papers started picking it up, a few of the papers over there, which I was able to find afterwards, um, they were picking up on the story how she was... Um, she had fled, and she then got placed on the most wanted list in the UK, um, because, obviously, she was a prisoner on mm. the loose. So she just got on the boat here, and um, she was planning to get a new passport and move to the Canaries. That was her big plan, and eventually get her son down with her, which I think had been arranged with her family. She seemed to still get on with everyone. They hadn't had, they didn't have a falling out, so that was all in pla in place until uh, she got picked up by the Gardaí two weeks after she got here. Right. And yeah. thrown into the Doka Centre. Straight in. And now she does admit that she enjoyed herself. The, the like the first story that I read at the time was that she had a a boozed up kind of week long party in in Temple Bar. She was regularly seen in pubs and clubs, and um, she. It was rumoured that she dabbled in drugs. I think I asked her that. I can't remember whether she confirmed it or not at the time. Um, but it was kind of painted that she was just here. It was painted that she was sleeping around, drinking around, um, trying to enjoy herself as much as possible. And um, she did apply for jobs and she got accepted into three jobs, she told me, but she never started working any of them. So she was she was unsure. She was just all over the place, to be honest, Nick. And what, like, you talk about her being an individual who makes bad decisions. What possessed her to ring the Sunday World newsroom? Well, obviously someone in her cell said the Sunday World is the crime paper for Ireland and she hadn't heard of us. Uh -huh. um, and she did say that to me um, and I just want to tell my story. So whatever time she, or access to the phone she got, she just decided to pick it up. And what did she want come. to, what would she want to achieve? Yeah, I actually asked her that and I, I remember her being kind of confused by the question um, because I think, I know in America it's kind of... The, I'd say the, she was a bit confused by you which you joined. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know what she was expecting but maybe her impre my impression of prisoners was probably ma matched by her naivety about what a journalist should look like um, oh yeah I mean I was I was I remember as a purple shirt on and a purple tie and everything and I just I don't know anyway I, I don't know why I decided to 
not stressed down. I should have probably, uh, maybe maybe Neve should have given me that advice as well. Although it worked, though, and I do genuinely yeah, think that I mean, naivety that is what got me past the gate. Because yeah. I, I honestly, now if I was going along to the Doka Centre, I'd be overthinking everything to uh-huh. the to the to the nth degree, and I would actually probably just bottle it at the side or on the spot and not actually get past the door. You would also like to think that the prison service would ask somebody for ID, no? Well, that was incredible. It was behind the window. The the man just asked who I was, and obviously she just had given this name, Jimmy Tippett. So, so as a as a as a potential guest during her stay, and that was all they asked. So while we're on it, okay, Jimmy Tippett. <laughs> Jimmy Tippett, well, for for 18 years, I've wondered who Jimmy Tippett is. And uh, whenever I tell the story, it inevitably leads to me being called Jimmy or Tippett for a yeah. couple of weeks thereafter from my mates. But um, It's kind of a cartoony name. Yeah, I mean, it does sound made up. And I just fobbed it off as being completely made up yeah. and um, and fictional in some way. Like, yeah, like a character from a TV show or something. And she just decided to throw a name in and she was just going to tell someone to use that name. But it turns out... Jimmy Tippett was um, a criminal himself uh, who had, there were several convictions a few years earlier and I found, I found a story recently um, that appeared the year before she arrived here and it appeared in a UK um, Sunday tabloid and it read, a gangster friend of Reggie Cray has left his wife and, and five-month-old child for a woman serving life for murder. Ex-boxer T- Jimmy Tippett, age 30, had been secretly visiting killer Claire McDermott no way. after writing to her in prison. Oh, my God. They found love. Oh, and she never mentioned prisons. that to you. And that she never Jimmy mentioned Tippett that. Was. Never mentioned that. You were like the fantasy. <laughs> well, I was the second plus one. Uh, <laughs> like, if the real Jimmy Tippett ever finds out, I must look him up and see what he looks like. But yeah, so this was her other half. Right. And maybe she had, maybe she hoped that he was going to come over and visit her. And that's why. See her story, know yeah. where she and was. And then she was picked up on the Friday and she phoned me on the Tuesday. So there was three or four days there. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I was her first phone call. Maybe she had been trying to get through to Jimmy and Jimmy says, no, I'm not going to make it over, uh, but I'll visit you when you cut back to the UK. She, she knew she was going to be moved back. So maybe she then decided to use that name to get me past the, the, the gates. And maybe someone in the cell just said, look, just call the Sunday World. They'll cover it for you. Jimmy said it was certainly on her mind. We know that. Yes. Yeah. For, so for what about this? So you're sitting there and you're listening to this story that she has and she's explaining away what happened and you're feeling sympathy for her. As look, people, we all feel sympathy. A lot of criminals are, you know, beneath a kind of a hard exterior can be quite nice people. They've made mistakes and uh, they can be quite charming and all the rest of it. But all the while you're listening to this story, there is an object in your pocket. <laughs> is, is that a camera in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? Honestly. And you know the size of disposable cameras. Like, now luckily skinny skinny trousers weren't in trend back in the early noughties. But yeah, I was very aware of the camera and I kind of found myself in between kind of trying to casually duck, look around because... A few people had joined the waiting room, obviously, in that hour, but they weren't staying long and it wasn't like any deep dives on their back life like I was doing. It was like a hello, how are you? And they were gone. It was quite a conveyor belt and it was always far away. We were over in the window in the corner. So I never felt, I never looked around to see who's listening, but I was looking around to see where the cops were because, or where the cameras were, because at some point I was going to have to attempt to get Claire this disposable camera in my, from my pocket into her possession. 
And that was definitely on my mind for the second half of uh, of the entire interview. So um, at one stage, I remember saying to her, can I ask you something? Um, nothing to do with you, but um, there's obviously a few people um, in this prison who we have a keen interest in. And I mentioned the Black Widow, Catherine Nevin. And she goes, oh, yeah, 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 I know who she is. Someone pointed her out to me. So she'd heard of her. So obviously, I don't know if there is a hierarchy in the Dokus, but... Oh, there would have been, yeah. I think Catherine was the name that everyone looked up to. Yeah. So she was aware of it, even though she was an English 20-something who'd come over and she'd only been there three days, she was already aware of who Catherine was. And I said, well, look, and I kind of bluffed a bit on this occasion. I did say to her, look, it, it would it would certainly help your story feature better if we can also get pictures of Catherine Evan behind bars. And my, I told her, my managing editor said she's never been pictured behind bars um, and we would love that picture. And if we do, I kind of just said, we'll look after your story better. I kind of just tried to ham it up a little bit. And um, she goes, well, look, she's walked past my cell a few times, but I've never been, she was trying to think about it straight away. She went into organising mode and trying to get this to happen. Um, I kind of feel we had weirdly bonded. Like she was almost trying to help me out. She was like, okay, I'm going to do this for you. Um, Obviously she had her own motives as well, but like, okay, I'm going to do this. And she kept saying, look, she's walked by me. It's been very quick. And I remember saying to her, look, if you're in your cell and she's outside the cell, just take some pictures. It doesn't matter how grainy it is. We'll just say it's the first picture and I'm not going to put you in trouble. the camera, you would have had to get it to her. I still had to hand it to her. But you would have had to get that back then to develop the pictures, Correct. Okay. Correct. So it's quite a complex arrangement. This isn't like sending a photograph. Very (laughs) old-fashioned. Like it is as archaic (laughs) as it gets, right? (laughs) So I said, look, at some point now in the next minute or two, I'm going to hand you the camera. And I just assumed that it would be under the desk because that just makes sense. Yeah. But she puts her hands out on top of the desk. Right. And I have my hand on the camera in my pocket. And I was, I was like, I'm not talking about it, but it's in my hand right now. And like underneath, she goes, no, I think it'll be too tight. The table is too low or something. She said, just give it to me. And I remember just like really quickly taking it out of my pocket and just placing it in her hands. Yeah. And she instantly just put it down her knickers. Like instantly just pulled out her waistband and put it down her knickers. And, and I said, oh. Okay, and I was like, okay, I'm just, I was not prepared for this day to go the way it has. Um, and I said, is, is that okay? And she goes, yeah, yeah. And I said, like, it's disposable. So, and I was like, remember wind it on. She goes, I know how to use a disposable. And I remember joking with Please her Please don't that. take a photograph while it's still there. Yeah, Jesus, yeah. I haven't wound it on yet, I don't think. Um, and um, and just, I'll come back in. Oh, yeah, she was like, I'll come back in on Friday because this is now Wednesday lunchtime. Yeah. I'll come back in on Friday, same time. I'll be Jimmy Tippett again, and um, you can hand it back to me. And I said, don't worry about finishing it off. Just just literally get as many pictures of any prisoners, but especially Black Widow. Yeah. And off I went back to the office, and uh, I regaled them the story, and they were like, okay, so we have... Okay, well, we have one story straight away, and I could see their, their the cogs working, and um, it was like, okay, so we have the English prisoner who, who fled jail, came to Ireland, and um, slept around and did drink and drugs and used Temple Bar as her home and didn't know where she was living, and then she got picked up by the police. That's a great story. And, um, oh, and look at this. We have a picture of her. So they had the picture of her from some UK site or crime site. So... They had that story, but... To get some, the pictures would have been the cherry on the pie. Yeah, and our picture editor at the time was brilliant and he had loads of contacts over there and he got these court pics of her appearing in court previous uh, eight, ten years earlier. And you can imagine this picture has been sitting on someone's computer for ten years and no one has ever 
batted an eyelid at it. It's just been sitting there as a file, but we managed to track her down. Um, and obviously I was able to confirm it was her because um, I'd just spent an hour with her. So that was fine. And I wrote it all up. Um, and um, then came Friday. I was a little more confident on Friday because we had just done it. And I went back in and um, sat down and I said, um, so will we just do the camera thing and I can go? Like I just, because there's no more other backstory to talk about. Yeah. I have nothing else to update you with. Um, <clears throat> and she goes, um, I bad luck, I couldn't get any pictures. And I said, um, well, can I get the camera then? And she goes, well, look, why don't I hold on to it until next week? And if I get some over the weekend, I'll get it to you. I was like, okay, fine. And I, got, I wasn't overly possessive about the camera, but I was, I kind of had in my head, I'd be bringing the camera home. And I said, well, like, is there anything on it that I can take away? And she goes, I don't even have it on me. There's nothing worth, it's, it's under my pillow or whatever she said. Right, okay, grand. So we chatted and I said, look, just so you know, I don't want to alarm you. Cause actually, I was nervous at this point, I forgot to say. I, the story had kind of twisted a little bit from her big life confession and her side of what happened to Lisa Morris back in uh, 1994 to us kind of... The headline was... Yeah, I mean, and we were going to go big and we were going to kind of go... We're kind of going to paint her as this wild thing who didn't really care about Lisa Morris's life that she took and she just wanted to go off and enjoy herself. Um, So I put that to her and she says, well, look, I I was just trying to relive my youth a bit because I've been incarcerated for so long and she kind of didn't really mind. She understood... But a bit of her was, like, kind of happy that the pictures of Catherine Evan hadn't happened because the story was still about her. I think in her head she had decided, I'm the story now. Um, Which what she did say to me was that um, Catherine Evan, I won't be able to get pictures of you, of her, the next day or two because she's in isolation. And I said, oh, what happened? And she goes, oh, she trashed her cell because she, the day before on the Thursday, she had lost her final appeal. I don't know which appeal it was. I'm sure it's complicated, but some appeal, which was going to allow her either out or to move to a better prison system or something, but she had lost the final appeal. And apparently she went berserk in the in the cell department and she trashed it. And I said, all right, okay. And I didn't think much of it. I just said, okay, Grant, we'll get the pictures of Catherine next week. Don't worry about it. I've got your story now and we'll do Catherine next week. And I was also kind of thinking, I don't want the two stories running side by side mm-hmm. so authorities don't put one on one together. So I got back to the office and the cogs got moving. <laughs> as soon as I mentioned the cell was trashed, it was like ding, 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 ding. So it, you're, telling me, you're telling me Catherine Nevin, Nevin trashed the place when she found out it was the final appeal. And I was almost like, how did I not think this was a story? I was like, I'm such, I'm such an idiot. Like, of course that's a story. Um, I went back as an, using that as an excuse. I didn't go back on, lads, you're not going to believe this. Yeah. Um, so uh, I remember uh, the managing editor saying, Neve, Neve, up to Neve O'Connor. She was up in a little raise. There was a, a part of the <laughs> office that was slightly, not on a pedestal or anything, no. <laughs> but there was the raise, a few steps up to that part of the floor, if you remember. And she says, Neve, come down here, come down here. And so, uh, so John said, look, this is what happened. And Neve's like, oh, great, great. Yeah, but Dara doesn't have a clue who Catherine Nevin is. Right, can you help him with the copy? And Neve says, yeah, no problem at all. I'll, I'll write it up and we'll just put Dara's name on it. And I said, no, no, I'm not. So we, we ended up sharing the byline. And it was, um, the, the front page was uh, Raging Nevin Cracks Up and it was uh, by Dara and Neve, and it was basically telling what Claire had told us. And there wasn't much copy to that because we were just telling the story about what had happened. And we touched on the appeal and stuff like that. But everyone knew about Tom and everyone knew about the murder from previous so we didn't have to go deep diving on that so that was only kind of 
it wasn't even a full page, but it was a splash, if you know what I mean. Mm. And yet, you go back to page 22 and 23, and we had we put this big spread in about the killer tells all of her escape to go on a booze bender was the headline. So she actually wiped herself off page one, despite Correct. the fact she said she couldn't get the picture by just telling you that little Correct. bit. Mm. Her naivety to tell me that, and my naivety not to really register it as a, as a crack and yarn. Um, so... We ended up getting three pages out of this. Um, so my bosses were happy, which means I was happy. But I was then sitting there on Sunday reading this going, oh, my God, I wonder, like, she's going to be really pissed off at me. She wanted, she, wanted more than the, she wanted more than pages 22, 23. She certainly didn't want a Catherine Evans story going in. She's a murderer. Jesus. I, like, I genuinely was worried, and I was a young lad, and I didn't know what to do, and I thought she'd be annoyed with some of the angles that I took in the piece and <clears throat> talking up her lifestyle in Temple Bar and stuff like that. And um, Did you get you, the cold sweats? A little bit, yeah, a little bit. Um, I remember on Tuesday evening, I was in my mate's gaff, there was a Champions League game on or something, uh, in Rory's apartment, and I was actually t- telling the lads, and they are like, just call and just see if it's okay. You're not going to meet her. And they actually convinced me. I had a few drinks on me. Drink the prison? to call Docus on Tuesday evening. It's probably about eight o'clock, half eight. And um, so I phoned up and I said, how you doing? It's Jimmy Tippett here for Claire McDermott. And I'm not going to do the accent justice here, but she says, oh, we know who you are, Mr. Tippett. Trust me, you won't be getting in to see Claire McDermott before she goes back to the UK. And you won't be getting that camera back either, he says to me. <laughs> they had turned over her cell completely and found the disposable camera. Yeah, so I there was a little bit of me that wanted her to be on my good in my wanted me to be in her good books because she still had the yeah. camera and the potential of a picture, that didn't happen. So this officer then found out. I'd say someone someone Mr. got Tippett. in serious <laughs> trouble over letting fake tip it in. I'd say so. Four or five days earlier, they probably um, changed the entire system of could uh, well visiting. Have. It was so easy, Nicola, and I swear to God, I had no tricks up my sleeve at all. I walked in so ignorant and naive. That it convinced but I cannot tell you how big this pad was that I brought in with me and a pen and I looked so obvious but it was so stupid it was like a fancy but dress. you kind of need the innocence I think to do those kind of things <clears throat> because the more experience you get the less likely you are you're going to go you're going to go oh no that's going to go wrong that's going to go wrong that's going to go wrong I was telling you there I had a, a prison experience not dissimilar to your own but in the UK and it, I was going over to see somebody, I won't name her, um, but she had been, she was on a very, uh, very serious conviction involving uh, the sex for sale industry. And I went over to Wales to visit her. She again told me to say I was her cousin, actually, in this case, and I was using a different name as well. But I actually took the boat over and drove down to this Welsh town and pulled all the way up to the um, car park at the prison and then realised, A, I didn't know what this girl looked like, so I was going to have to go in looking for my cousin and not know which direction to walk in when I got into the visiting area. And B, she was South African. And it just struck me outside the prison. What? Yeah, exactly. Was she white South African or was she black South African? So I started to kind of panic and hyperventilate. And I rang a friend of mine who is South African and asked her just on the basis of the name, could you give me any advice on whether she's, you know, she she would be the same ethnicity as myself? And she said, no, I doubt it. (laughs) Please tell me you didn't blackface. (laughs) Oh, no. So in I go anyway. And same thing, I 
I don't think I'd fake ID with me. So maybe I was operating under my own name now that I think about it. But uh, I got into this vast, through the whole thing, you know, bag taken, everything, into this completely vast visiting hall where there was loads of tables and loads of different prisoners and I could just there was a prison officer kind of with me as I was and I just sort of looked around frantically not knowing what in the name of God I was looking at and eventually this girl just put up her hand and went hi cuz so she knew what you looked like did she or she she obviously she copped that you were sort of random Irish Irish cousin Irish cousin and there would be no questions obviously asked and it would have been inappropriate for anyone to ask questions about why we were cousins or anything. But again, it was some experience and that they are the sort of stories yeah. and the sort of experiences in crime reporting that are awaiting our I know they are. Yeah. I actually have one little update as well on it if there's time. Because um, I was still nervous about what she thought of what... I wrote and I and I obviously knew she was going to be moved to the UK. Um, so it was in the back of my mind that a murderer is going to be really pissed off at me. Did she know your real name? Yes, yeah. she did by now. Yeah, and yeah. She certainly did by oh, the byline. By, by yeah. by uh, remember the byline that I was cherishing so yeah. much? <laughs> I should have just put Jimmy Tippett on. <laughs> but I, yeah, so I, it, it was in the back of my mind and it will come up every now and again, but Obviously, you get, you move on with things, and like you know, um, last Sunday splash is is forgotten about very quickly. Um, time heals. Yeah, so time did heal until completely randomly three months later, uh, I got a letter with a st- and a stamp on the outside of the envelope had uh, Her Majesty's service um, stamp a, a prison service stamp on it. I was like, oh my god, what is this? And I opened it up, and it was a six page handwritten letter from Claire McDermott in her new prison, which was. London based it was the, the I, I remember being the greater London area and I was like I'm actually nervous to read this um because I didn't know where it was going to go but incredibly it was a thank you letter for putting her side of the story across allowing her to tell what happened back in 1994 she also thanked me for telling the truth about how we were going to paint her okay and really, really appreciated it. Um, obviously, she'd been dealing with some journalists in the UK, and I'm not bigging myself up here, but she kind of decided that the way I treated her was far better than the way you she gave her a treated. heads up, basically, yeah. of what to expect. Now, I mean, I, that, was, that was kind of myself, it was for my own motivation, because I wanted that camera back, remember? I was yeah. trying to play, play, the, play up our relationship a little bit and our friendship. <clears throat> but she went on and on, and she says, whenever I write a book, I'm going to contact you. We're going to do a book together. It was all this kind of stuff. And um, it went on for six pages, front and back, handwritten letter. And uh, that kind of freaked me out a little bit, but it also put my mind at ease. She wasn't coming out to kill yeah. me. Like, yeah. that's it, we're done she now. She coming out to kill you. Yeah. Uh, she just wanted friendship. She just wanted someone to talk to. Um, so, and I've since contacted the prison service in the UK to find out what the update is. And they, um, <clears throat> they're actually really helpful. I don't know if they're as helpful over here, but they, um, they a nice guy called Josh got on to me and all he said was, look, following her escape from um, from our, from an English prison, um, she was brought back here to England. We have searched her relevant details, and I'm afraid our databases have no record of her. This is down to the fact that our logs do not go back that far. Um, it is worth noting that she likely completed her term a long time ago. So that would explain the lack of search results in our system. So I'm just going to assume that she 
finished her term and possibly got a bit added on. You might know more about how this works for absconding, um, but she is hopefully now back with her son, maybe with Jimmy or someone maybe else. Jimmy Tibbs, you never yeah, find out whatever we'll happened to, find to him. Out. Yeah, yeah, and um, and I just it's just a story that it's so far. From and if my she's family. listening or anybody else, oh, get in touch, Claire. Please get in touch with Dara because he'd love to continue <laughs> with this. Okay, long time no speak. <laughs> so finally, any sort of advice, maybe uh, given that for the newbies or for other people who would be possibly interested in a job in crime journalism and don't say don't do it <laughs> oh definitely do it it's amazing I, I loved it now I'm, I'm it's a far far cry from what I do these days um, I'm sitting down with the celebrities now and having proper interviews as opposed to chasing chasing stories around the streets but it it is fascinating it is fun it is so exciting it can be scary at times um, no doubt uh, you have to have a thick skin but like just as I said to you at the top seeing your byline on an exclusive story is just it's an incredible feeling like and there, there might be a bit of snobbery towards the crime stories or the tabloid side of things I, I don't care what people think they they like it's your byline it's your story and sometimes you're not just reporting on stories you're breaking stories and that's what we do in the Sunday world as you know and so you want to know that everyone in the business is picking up the paper on a Sunday to to see what we've broken and what new stories they need to go chasing because that's what we do so I wouldn't I wouldn't be t- turning anyone off crime journalism and half far the time it. it feels like you're uh, starring in a sitcom no two days are the same I think it's incredible like for one hour I was Jimmy Tippett and yeah. I'll never ever forget it I love it Derek Heaney thank you so much thanks Nicola you've been listening to Crime World a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me Nicola Talent. research assistant is Claude Amini if you like this show and love true crime leave us a review why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.